Yeah, I feel like crazy people music was sort of like a theme we would talk about a lot <laughs> back in the day. Very. Like, so this talk, is a, like, talk a little bit more about that. This is like, <laughs> this is after preset music or something, if we're self-era-ing or whatever. Uh, but yeah, like crazy people music was just like stuff you listen to it and you're like, there's like, it like just sounds insane. Like when you, like the... Like the song itself is like a logical thing when it comes out, but if you actually start to like listen to it, you're like, this music sounds broken. Hi, this is Jack Callahan, and you are listening to 400 Floor. You just heard from Aaron Anderson and Chris Hontos, known together as Beat Detectives. Growing up in the cultural desert of small town Midwest, they met at the oasis of Minneapolis in the early thousands a period of time that you should be quite familiar with if you've been a listener of this podcast. Both being fans of extreme music, they wondered what it would be like to make music that people actually enjoyed listening to. A novel concept, right? And thus, birthed Beat Detectives, a project which continues to flourish even after their move to New York almost a decade ago. This episode has been edited from the full conversation, which is available at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor.com. This is 400 Floor. Let's go on and get into it. Hello, guys. I'm joined today uh, by the Beat Detectives. Uh, we got Aaron Anderson and Chris Hontos. And uh, welcome to the podcast. What's up, Jack? Hi. What's up? Hi, Jack. Hi. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess I'll start with, uh, why don't I start with Aaron? Uh so I'll ask my question that I ask everybody, which is, how did you come to get into music, and uh, how did you come to know that uh, music was something that's important to you? And also, I guess, for you, as uh, you are also a, uh, you work in video as well, that's a big part of your artistic output, I'm curious about all of that stuff, just how you came to know that, like, art and music was what you uh wanted to do in your life yeah so what's what's the what's your origin story with all that uh i don't know i grew up in south dakota <laughs> i, don't I know. guess uh, I, don't, I don't know i just ended up here. sorry um, <laughs> no uh, i grew up in south dakota and you know i don't know like early 90s was or later 90s i guess is when i graduated from high school and then uh yeah i don't know i got into music when i was a kid through uh like my dad had tapes in his car and we would listen to them i was really into the side b of in agata devita like that one single long song like i definitely remember listening to that I, we that like Rolling Stones greatest hits where it's just the head inside the head inside the head picture. There was like a Pink Floyd album, maybe like a Grateful Dead tape or something, but it was like whatever was in the car and then radio type stuff, I guess. And then, uh, yeah, what else? I don't know. I was in a band in high school. That was probably like the first time where I like really got into like playing music in front of people or something. And uh, <clears throat> it was cool. We were called um, Kitty Litter, K-I-D-D-I-E-L-I-T-T-E-R. <laughs> and uh, we played some originals and we played a 
we played a couple of Rage covers, a couple of Deftone songs. Um, I was pretty into new metal for a period of time. And then uh, I guess that's when I got into music or something. I had CDs and cassette tapes. I had a cousin that got me into like, or like, you know, dubbed me a corn album, the first corn album. And like, I remember that being like very, like nobody else liked that music in South, like in South Dakota. So like I grew, and I grew up in like a class of, it was like 20 people or 40 people in my class. And I like went to kindergarten with all of them and graduated with them. And uh, so it was pretty in the middle of nowhere, I guess. What town is it? I grew up in this town called Chester, I guess is the closest town. Which is like, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's you, not even the town. It's not the name of the closest town. Uh, yeah, totally. It's like <laughs> ten blocks long and two hundred people, kind of. Vibe. But uh, I don't know. It was kind of a weird era of music too. I would like go to shows in Sioux Falls in high school and go to this place called the Pomp Room, and like there was like a year where it was like Marilyn Manson, Blink One Eighty Two, Less Than Jake, like all these like Interscope band, I guess, on their like whatever third tier market tour or something but it was cool and it <laughs> yeah. was a lot of fun and you know it was crazy yeah totally do you remember like how you found out about more of like like a local or like i mean DIY there really or something scene? one yeah. sort of and it was like those shows had this like you would go i saw like fuck what was the band called the muffins and, uh, you know, like, there was as ne many... Never heard of them. <laughs> yeah, there was some ska band or something, but they played with Pansy Division, and it was like, there was as many people at that show that would be at, like, Blink-182 and Less Than Jake, it seemed like, to me. But I didn't, like, really know anybody else at the shows or anything. I was just some kid in the back, like, just sort of being like, this is fucking crazy. Um, <laughs> but then, and, like, my band in high school, there was, like, one other band. And they played like Radiohead songs and they hated us because we were like, you know, the other band from kind of from around two bands. They were from yeah. a town called Madison, which was a little bit bigger. But yeah. yeah, so it was like pretty, pretty standard, I guess. Uh, then I went to college and I feel like I stopped listening to music. I was hanging out with these people that like were they hated music, I guess. I don't know if they really wow. like what they said. That's actually said really they fascinating to Do me. Do you mean John Tapp? John Tapp is the person that I'm talking about. But they he only <laughs> like he only listened to like talking heads and ween or something, basically. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a guy who hates music for sure. <laughs> and uh I I appreciated the humorous aspects about both of those bands, I guess. But uh um and then like the first time I ever like got into like a scene or something was Kind of like right after I graduated from college, I started hanging out with like the Plastic Constellations and kind of all these like Minneapolis bands and then like these bands from Iowa City called like, I guess like post 10 grand bands is what they would call them. But like the Shadow Government and all that stuff, Will Whitmore. And it was like, that was the first time where I ever like was like, oh, this is like, these people all know each other and they're like, they're invested in each other's output or something creatively or something like that. Where'd you go to college? And I went to college at MCAD, the Minneapolis. Oh, nice. Yeah. Design. Oh, crazy. Yeah. And I went to school for animation. Like that's why I moved to Minneapolis from South Dakota. And then I went to school for animation 
and that's kind of how I got into video, I guess, or like, you know, I worked as a projectionist at the Walker for a long time too, which was also like a cool way to end a backdoor into like learning about like Terry Riley or something like that kind of. But Aaron, um, Aaron was, was, um, Radical Cemetery, your first actual band in Minneapolis. Yes. And that I, like, we started playing when I was like 27 years old. It was like pretty late as far as like, I spent my like early twenties in like an art collective where we worked with, I don't know. It's like pretty complex and convoluted, I guess, basically, but we were kind of just a lot of kids hanging out. And it was me and Eric Carlson and this girl, Crystal. And we just like made a lot of work together. Crystal Quinn's her name. And uh, I guess like the idea behind it was like, we were kind of doing stuff with like rappers and they were all like fake. They had this like fake tough persona and we were kind of like interested in redirecting that or it just seemed fake to me at the time or something. And uh that's sort of how we started making like art together was like doing these like weird noise band uh like rap performances or something like getting two different like crews together to like overlap in this way that felt unusual subversive. for the time or something yeah maybe subversive wow are, are there recordings of this uh i don't know probably somewhere there's, there's radical cemetery tapes out there they're really crazy and really good and they yeah, have there's a couple of radical graphic design tapes. yeah i i have to request that you you have to tell them about purple rain oh yeah purple rain that was pretty that was stupid so i'd never seen purple rain before <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like people in minnesota and minneapolis are very proud of prince in this way that not being from there i felt very it felt weird or something kind of like culty or something like that and i i love prince he's amazing he's super cool and like i agree with everything but there was just this the way that people talked about it i felt out, an outsider to that so anyway the first time i watched purple rain eric and i like ran it through like a couple delay pedals and like a chaos pad and like we recorded it and then we did like a screening of that at this like micro cinema in Minneapolis. And it was pretty torturous in my opinion. Um, <laughs> you got run out of town after that? No, nobody really cared, but it was just like three <laughs> hours of just like bad effects. And it would do this thing where it would cut back like five minutes kind of like randomly. And it happened like twice throughout, but it made it feel like it was just going to keep you like lost any sense of like beginning and end. Why don't we then uh, cross over and then go over to Chris? Uh, same question. Like, what was your sort of like early experience with music? And uh, yeah, how did you get to know that's what you wanted to do? Uh, I actually still don't know if that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> Good man. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but it, it's something I just do compulsively anyway. Um, 
I didn't, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I guess my dad had a tape uh, and it was one of those clear Memorex, like it had like neon yellow and pink on it. And he had written on it, Bob Mallory dash Reggie music. So that was pretty cool. I loved listening to that. Um, let me think. The first the first album I ever bought was Ace of Bass Design, which like kind of was embarrassing for a minute. And then I revisited the record as an adult and I was like, oh, this is like a fucking awesome album, actually. Yeah, like, like, this is great. It digital Rasta production is really cool. And I I I fuck with that still. Let's see. I really liked Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion 2. That song, Estranged, really got me every time. I don't know why. I have not revisited that one. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I guess I played piano for about five years, and that was fun. And then I kind of was like, it was fun, but until I realized you had to fucking practice every day, and I was like, you know, 12, 13 years old, I'm like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. So that was the the end of my formal education in music. Um, <laughs> my dad owned a Greek deli in downtown St. Cloud, Minnesota, and next door was the Electric Fetus. Yeah, so, totally. I used to go to that. Yep. My favorite place. Um, I would work a lunch shift and I'd walk out of there with about $4 and change in tips. And then I would go over and buy two or three used CDs with that money, um, which basically would just look for whatever looks really punk and then I take it home and listen to it. And, uh, that, that was, that was huge for me. Um, listening to that stuff. I never had ambitions of being in a band. I never thought I could do it. Uh, and, but I met someone really cool in high school named Jeff Hammerlink, who's a really, really good friend. We started a band called check behind neck <laughs> It was he was playing like wild free drumming, free jazz drumming, just insane person uh, stuff. And I just played guitar or bass or I guess in one case of our the case of our second show, I played my motorcycle. I drove it into this to the little DIY venue and revved the I was engine, at like that a, show, too. And Aaron was at that show. That's right. But we didn't know each other at that. Coincidentally. Time. Yeah. How old are you at that point, Chris? I was probably 18 or something. Um, I don't know what year that was. I guess 2002 or three, four. 2003 or four, probably. Yeah, so maybe I was so, 19. So this was in mini. This was in Minneapolis. It was in St. Cloud. This was in St. Cloud. Why were you in in St. Cloud? Aaron? I mean, I grew up there. That's no, where no. I, I know, but what? But if Aaron, why was why yeah? Were why you, was you why there? were you there? I was there with the Plastic Constellations. I was just hanging out. I was just like a droopy ultimately i mean they were fun they were awesome to hang out with you know friendship rock and roll i've just yeah. felt like i uh, haven't grown up in minneapolis and like my mom is from like saint joseph mm -hmm. i'm just like why would anyone ever go hang out in saint cloud if they didn't if they lived in minneapolis i shared the sentiment it was a festival <laughs> yeah that band killed the vultures I, was playing i was really oh, into wow. that band okay if oh you, yeah that I was cool know. yeah they were spooky, awesome spooky rap yeah so Check Behind Neck was my band, and then and that was literally just a performance art project before we knew what performance art was. And it was our way of being the only weirdos in a small town and just being like, fuck all you people. But not not like antagonistically, but in a way of just being like the weirdest possible vibe to set off the most normal possible vibe, you know? Classic teenage shit. 
Yeah, and that was it. I mean, we just played a few shows, and it was just purely us blowing off steam. I didn't play music again for almost 10 years. I feel like it wasn't until my late 20s that I actually picked up a synthesizer and started actually having an ambition to, like, realistically play music. But in that time, I started, I just listened voraciously to every possible thing, you know, like, loved music, loved jazz, loved John Coltrane, loved Velvet Underground, loved um, Aphex Twin, punk and hardcore Discharge. Um, I think the first, like, electronic music that I got into, well, that it was probably Aphex Twin, but actually the deeper one is this album that I was telling you about last week, Jack, Bomb 20. It's on digital hardcore recordings, and it's, it's like this guy who passed away, but it's this one album. I bought it at Media Play in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and I had no idea what it was, and I put it on. I was like, this is the most fucked up thing I've ever heard. And it blew, it blew my mind, and that album still is actually one of the coolest albums I've ever heard. Um, everyone should, should give that a spin. Um, but that kind of opened up my mind a little bit. I remember one distinct moment in my early, maybe 21, 22, whatever year uh, Beaches and Canyons came out and Dead Hills by Wolf Eyes. Um, and I got both of them because I worked at the radio station. 2003, four, maybe even five, somewhere around there. Like I had heard noise music. I was into some things and I was really into anything adjacent to like punk and hardcore. Um, but those two albums came into the radio station that I worked at and I brought them home and I was like, what the fuck is this shit? Mind blowing, absolutely confounding. Like, like what, how, like, who are these people and how, why would they possibly do this? You know, that was like the impression. I was just like, this is crazy. Never in a million years did I think I could ever do something like that. I don't think I've ever done anything as good as those two albums, but that that was like so far away from my mentality. I was just like in awe of what this shit was. When did you move to Minneapolis? Uh, probably right around that, probably that same year, like 2000. I, I don't know the, the numbers, yeah. to be honest with you. I was 2022. 20, I, I graduated from college, moved to Minneapolis. Where'd you go to college? St. Cloud State University. I was about to say, St. Cloud State. That's cool. Prestigious yeah. Very prestigious university. Um, <laughs> got my philosophy degree. Wow. Oh, it's very interesting. Do you, I'm sure it's, that still plays a very large role in your life, everything you studied in undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think about Descartes every day. Yeah, totally. It's crazy. Totally. totally. Well, yeah, I mean, so then you moving to Minneapolis, obviously, from... I mean, I'm sure you from small town. From I mean, small I town. actually grew up like going to shows at First Avenue and doing all the Minneapolis things, going to the church, going to 10, 1021 house. Is that what that one was like? Is it 1021 or something like that house? I went there twice. Yeah. And uh, Oregon House right before I moved to Minneapolis, which is a key, key historical uh, player that Aaron and Eric had a lot of crossover at. Um. I'm, I'm curious, like, how did you get into, like, going to, like, DIY shows? It started with a place called the Medusa. Um, I mean, there, there was Mala's, and then there was uh, the church. But then when those places kind of were done, Medusa came, over, came up. 
And that, you know, you go to those places as a shy young kid and you're like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I I cannot even process trying to talk to anyone because they're so much cooler than I am. It was like, this is, these are the coolest people that I feel akin to, but I also don't feel like I belong in any way to this scene. And then because of the particular Minnesotan way of how people communicate and are bonded in these experiences, you basically go to the sit, you see the same shows with the same people for like five years. And then you start to open up a small conversation and then you become friends. But, you know, I was also a pretty like shy person, but, but yeah, I feel like you, you, I put in my time and, and I barely got any like real, like, you know, social interactions out of it, but it was still just so inspiring and so awesome to be around it. How did you hear about what shows were happening? Well, there was this uh, a webs a message board called the Modern Radio Message Board. This guy Tom Loftus ran this label called Modern Radio Records in Minneapolis, and there was a message board. And I remember a, a few key figures, like everyone would post all the DIY shows there. People would shoot shoot off their their mouths. People would you know pontificate about which wire album you could learn about Captain Beefheart there. That's where I learned yes. about beef heart, like chronology right. and hierarchy for the first time. <laughs> right. And I was like, oh, this is a thing. It was, it, it was very guitar oriented. Like, I feel like the scene in general in Minneapolis is always, has always been very guitar centric. So it was a lot of guitar. Anything that was fully not, had no guitars in it was pretty much not in, in the, the realm of what people were interested in. But still... I mean, there's a lot of great guitar music, so I learned a lot about all that stuff and connected with some people on that board, got got out to the shows in Medusa, um, and then one day eventually made played a show there, and then that kind of triggered everything. You said you didn't really play music for an, another however many years or whatever, and then... Uh, what happened was I was working at the Central Library, Hennepin County Central Library, and there was this guy named Michael Weddington who I worked with, who I bonded with, became friends with, and he had a Moog Little Fatty synthesizer. And I was like, huh, maybe we should start a band. Here's here's what it's going to be. It's going to be a Noi cover band. We just play Hallo Gallo for like 45 minutes, and that's it. That's easy, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 super yeah. easy. Yeah, As yeah, it yeah. turns out, it's literally impossible. It's one of the hardest um, things you could possibly do. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Fool, fools, it's like a fool's, um, fool's mission to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Fool's errand. So there's this other guy named Chris Farstead. Uh, these are two of my oldest best friends. We started a band called Food Pyramid as a, basically to replicate noise Hallow Gallo. We, we did that band for like five years or six years after that. And we every single time we put out an album, we tried to do that. We never even got close. Like, it just <laughs> became this, this other thing where it was like, okay, we just can't do that. So let's just try and replicate other rock music that we like. Or let's just take acid and go to the cabin and jam for a weekend and see what happens. 
it started. So Michael had a little fatty. I was dating this girl who had a micro cord and I was like, can I the gateway drug, the gateway. the gateway drug. I used that thing for so many years, but I had, after that girl and I broke up, I had to buy my own, which was incredibly sad. Um, but spending $250 on a synth or whatever it was, 200, like at the time was like, that's like what you pay for rent in Minneapolis in like 20, 2005. That's like mental amount of money. So that was a huge investment. Um, uh, we didn't even know what MIDI was. We didn't, I never recorded anything. I didn't know that you could just record something direct in. I didn't know what a PA was. I thought we, for the first three albums that we made, they were all recorded through mic mic'd amps. And it was, it was all synths and like drums and some stuff, but it was like just through mic'd amps. Was, there was no concept of GarageBand or like Pro Tools or, or doing it in any way that made actual sense. It was purely a trial by fire. Didn't know what MIDI was, didn't know anything. And we just basically, that band just pieced it all together the hard way, trying to figure out not only what music is, but what synthesizers are, and then how to play music with a group of people that are, you know, have all different backgrounds in playing music or not playing music, including myself, you know? So it was a trial by fire. So was that the band that played Medusa? Yes. So we, we played Medusa, and I'm, I think that was the most nervous, like, stage fright anxiety I've ever had in my life. I almost vomited. And it was like such a low stakes show. I, I can't remember what bands were playing, but it was like our moment to like do something in front of these peers that I held in such high esteem that I couldn't possibly live up to. And we did not live up. <laughs> we, we really did. It was like pretty shitty uh, as it usually is. But we did. We got through it and we did it and then we kept doing it. And eventually we kind of found a groove. What uh, What did the band sound like? It sounded like Krautrock. We loved Cluster. We loved Noi. Um, we loved Ashra Temple and we tried to basically replicate that, but we were also kind of weird and like, couldn't do that. Right. So it comes out. Sometimes it comes out as really mundane music. Sometimes it comes out as a really fucked up prism prismatic like version of it. So some of it's okay. I, I don't, I'm not like not, I'm not proud of it, <laughs> but I'm also not that embarrassed of it anymore, but it certainly was a work in progress. I don't think of it as an artistic statement or a, a statement that actually was successful, but what it was successful in doing was having some of the best experiences with a group of friends that I'll never forget and was like so fun. So I, I would disagree with Chris here. I thought Food Pyramid was quite, <laughs> quite successful. And their live shows well, were you. really good. The recorded stuff was great. Yeah. And the, I feel like when Food Pyramid, like, they would play at all these art shows. And we were like, who the fuck is this Food Pyramid band? Like, where the fuck did they come from? And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it was good. You know what I mean? It wasn't like the music was bad and you were, like, jealous of it or something. It was, like, competitive. <laughs> no. Sort of, like, damn. <laughs> People are raising the bar here, or something, in a way. Or something. So that's quite a yeah. quite a drastic. Uh, I mean, you can never really <laughs> judge your own projects, obviously. No, but like it's uh, hard. We uh, so there was this guy named Steve Rosborough who ran a. He started a label called Moonglyph, he still which is it. still active. Yeah, and they one they put out a couple things before us, but we were like one of their one of the early like flagship bands. And we he this was back in the days of MySpace. Like we didn't, you know, we had like a. Uh, uh, like a tape, like a my, um, 
handheld tape recorder demo or something. And he was like, cool, let's do a tape. We ended up doing a trilogy of tapes um, because we thought that seemed like something a kraut rock band should do. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but one, one, two, and three or whatever. That's what they're called, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so those came out and it was in the days of the internet when like the, the, the early days of the like blog culture. So like Mutant Sounds, 20 Jazz Funk Greats, like, of course. These types of places. Prog. Pitchfork not was frog. around. Wait, what yeah, was yeah. what was that one, Aaron? Prog, not frog. That was a good wow. One. Yeah, dude. I these are. I used to, uh, man. I it's, it's all on old computers, you know. So like the book, my my old the bookmarks. bookmarks. I actually thought about that. I was like, I wish I had access to that. Well, it's cool. They all have like the list on the side of the page too. So it's like if you just go to one site, you can just see all of the names, which is sick. Geraldo is on MSN. We got we got around a little bit on the blog circuit and like got written about and so we were kind of like okay well we it always felt like so so nice when it was like oh someone from anywhere else in the world basically that isn't Minnesota was like oh this is cool stuff that was like I was like oh my god really I was like that's crazy someone actually likes this shit so yeah we got around a little bit and we made a bunch of other albums and uh, we did a couple small tours and. Then some side projects came about from it as things kind of the band sort of started to uh, separate a little bit uh, because of people moving away. And that's kind of actually, oh, wait, actually that it was about mid midway through the food pyramid years that I met Aaron. And I'll tell that story. We I knew Aaron just only like had hung out with him a couple of times. I mean, I don't know if we ever really hung out one on one, but like we kind of knew each other from around and I knew he was a visual artist. And we had a uh, an album coming out, a CD on a label from Seattle called Debacle Records or something like that. I have no, I don't remember much of anything from that label. But anyway, so I asked him to do the artwork, and I was like, "Hey, man, you're like an artist. Do you want to do artwork for this?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> and we hung out, and he he came through, he came through with the uh, artwork, and he showed it to me, and I was like, "Are you?" making fun of me like are you fucking with <laughs> <You're> me? Like, <laughs> like this is like the most <laughs> thing i've ever seen uh and it, it was not in retrospect it was so totally perfect and actually like yeah way more forward level, thinking probably, than yeah. i could have ever come up with but it but it felt like he was like making fun of the fact that we were trying to be do like new age or kraut rock music and i'm like but you're like making a joke of that and i just was so self-serious at the time that i couldn't process that that there is a sense of subversion that isn't just ironic in the way that he had presented it ultimately we did a compromise on the artwork but and i think it looks amazing but the original thing that he wanted to use uh, i was like i'm sorry dude i can't what was the what was it i think it was a combination of the text being like some unbelievably like stupid hallmark card kind of thing and like the image being the most stereotypical like new age garbage like it was i remember the image it was like a 
cube that I had like stretched and then put like a gradient, like pink, like blob in the middle or something, but it was all blue. Yeah. But it yeah. was like, yeah. It the looks, actual final artwork is really cool. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, that's how we met. And then the uh, food pyramid kind of went into two or three other bands that I did. One was called Dream Weapon that was more about techno music and like live electronic, like basically combining like basic channel and discharge was kind of like the ethos <laughs> of that band. That's like kind <laughs> of you. That's very much a, that's very much a you, a you type, uh, <laughs> you type thing. Very true. It did, I, whether or not it was successful in doing that, that was the intention. Okay, so so I guess right before that was when Aaron and I had a side project called Beat Detectives, which is funny because in in a way I still feel like Beat Detectives is a side project, even though and yeah, it's not project. It's it's now been like a ten year long uh, project, but uh, yeah. So we started Beat Detectives. I don't know. How, do you want to tell the story of how that how that was for you? Sure. Okay. I mean, okay. So like playing music, I guess as an adult. Is that where this started for you, Chris? Kind of? Yeah. <laughs> were, were we adults? You were. You were an adult. Uh, <laughs> um, so, like, I started playing music probably when I was like twenty-seven, and it was like I definitely was interested in all the same things Chris was probably, and uh, like I definitely like I remember going to the church in Minneapolis. Halloween of 1999. That was the first time I ever went there. And it was it was awesome. Yeah. Saw a lot of good shows there. Saw a lot of cool bands. Became friends with a lot of people that live there. And, but yeah, the one Minneapolis band that was cool was Quadmuth. I don't know if you ever heard them. Um, they, they were the predecessor to the most important, probably the mutually between Aaron and I, I would, maybe I'm speaking for, more for myself, but probably the most important single band in our my musical history which was skull kodiak uh, yeah absolute uh, sophie sophie mentioned them I've, i'm not yeah. i'm i'm not familiar with awesome. them yeah quadmuth was like their first band and it was like kind of like i guess like parallel fort thunder type stuff so they like made cool artwork and like they would get grants and like make holograms and like beer bottles and like weird like mutant paintings and stuff it was cool so anyway yeah like just kind of like hung out watching weird noise stuff and then i'd done this like art project called hardland heartland with eric and crystal and all these people and then as a result of that sort of just like met tons of people in different sort of scenes in minneapolis that were like you know but also throughout the country, I feel like you you guys... Yeah, we did some shows, and like that's how I met Britt from Not Not Fun, was we did an art show at this gallery in Los Angeles, and um, that was cool. They would do a lot of music shows there, and there was like a, like Sonora played like in our show like two days after we installed it. But I mean, not we didn't communicate with one another. They just booked shows at the gallery kind of thing. 
But it was cool. I would like we'd end up Eric and I would do something and Taterbug would just be there too. He was kind of like <laughs> shout uh, out. I got I got to yeah, get him on the pod. You, know? you have to yeah. get him on the pod. But uh I I actually started I used to play music with this guy Will Cap who was from Iowa City and I went down there for a couple of weeks and recorded an album with him. We called it We Below's. We just like we played a show in like the park that like really nobody showed up to. And then we played a show at like Taterbug's house that was like peaking lights wet hair and two other people or something and it was like kind of just like everybody in that iowa city zone was there at that point in time or something in this way so like that was kind of the first music i had started playing and then i started a band with eric kind of after a lot of the art stuff slowed down a little bit or something or we were kind of growing apart that way or something and uh sophie sophie actually named radical cemetery she was in like art 2d or something like that in school and uh somebody kept calling radial symmetry radical cemetery (laughs) (laughs) the visual idea yeah yeah yeah. nice so we so we took that it was cool and it was just like we just had a bunch of junk you know like we both had like yamaha psr keyboards and then like a couple of delay pedals and some distortion but then it was like just like five different amps of different sizes and kind of like shreddy. We subjected people to our performances, it felt like sometimes, I guess. (laughs) And then when we'd practice, we'd play for like four hours at a time and just kind of like, just be the loud guys in the basement while these like weird kids were hanging out upstairs, which was cool. Then I met Chris at some point in time. And it was like, I guess in my opinion, when I met Chris and we started Beat Detectives, I was tired of making, like, music that, like, was off-putting or something and, like, was more interested in making enjoyable music that people could have fun <laughs> to. Nice. Which was which was what happened, you know what I mean? That's for the really most part, the, yeah. That was the result for the most yeah. part. Yeah. Um, Everybody reaches that point in their yeah. in their lives making experimental. Yeah, I was music. like thirty years old or something like that. Like I, why? I yeah. got out a lot of the like sort of like angsty sort of angles or something earlier or something. I think that mentality is also speaks to like my like starting Beat Detectives. I always felt like a side project where we could make pop more like poppy oriented music. You know, I think people have told me it's it's not as poppy as I think it is but it's uh but that was kind of like the it was like acceptable to do that because we had already done our like other weird things and it was like this is a side project so we'll have uh oakley our friend oakley topola singing and we'll make sort of more danceable music that will get girls to dance at medusa or whatever even though it was fully improvised for the most part and yeah, that was kind of the genesis. It started with a with our mutual friend Derek Maxwell as well, who actually t- named the band. Right? Didn't he come up with Beat Detectives? I, you know, I don't remember. It was I don't even remember how the name happened. That's we'll keep it a mystery, but we should definitely credit Derek. Yeah, uh, our first show was at Art of This with Bitch and Bajas, which was a cool two microcorgs. Two microcorgs. That's what we played. Just two microcorgs. Yep. And then it graduated to like a four track, two microcorgs, and then just like. And an Electribe. Yeah, an Electribe for a long yeah. period of time. But, you know, again, we didn't know how to record. So we were using the four track, which was Aaron's. Aaron was really good at that. And I had never really used it. 
but that was that was uh critical for us because it was like for me especially i was like oh i can like overdub i can actually like record something on top of it what and then the most mind-blowing thing ever which which this is like aaron literally defined our sound more than any anything could ever like he had the most significance by doing this one thing where we were listening back on a jam we made and he just turned the dial down and pitched it like slowed it down to a point where i was like wait what you can't do that like the song (laughs) he like blew my mind and i was like actually the chopped and screwed version was infinitely better and that really to me like opened that blew my mind that was like critical point of my musical education where i was like what is this guy thinking but of course as always aaron was like light years ahead of the curve (laughs) that's all it takes played what like two shows we played in some basements it was fun people freaked out and then i moved here in 2012 no we played more than we played a few shows we played shows for like six months or something before you moved away i feel like yeah 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 Yeah. and we released we 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 recorded two demos uh one of which still exists which we can send you recordings of that was fully made on the four track then aaron moved to new york wow big uh big upset there i bet that was a bit of a not really because it was like a side project anyway and we could i could just i had a four track here and uh i would record stuff and send it to chris although funny kristen i remember like er, there's some early recordings where it's not like the imports aren't timed to the bpm so they're not actually synced like the whole tracks are out of sync which is cool that definitely yeah. added to the sound for a period of time. Where it's for just sure. not, it would just drift or whatever. Just not even, not even drifting. It's no, all yeah, not even out like of sync at from all. the Synchronization yeah. was not a, a concept until a few years later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we did that um, at the, at the point, at that point, Beast Detectives was still playing in Minneapolis. Aaron was contributing. We were making the recordings together, but the live band was me, Oakley, and my girlfriend at the time, Sarah Burns, who I roped into playing some keyboards and being, you know, playing playing the chords and like helping out with that. Uh, and we would play dance parties. People would love it. It was it was really fun. Um, it was a fun vibe. Um, but the recordings were always, you know, me, Oakley, and Aaron. The first album we did, like, was on Moonglyph. It was called Casual Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> it's. If you if revisiting that album at first, it's like pretty um, poppy, but it's pretty weird. But it also kind of complains that it, it kind of contains the template actually like unintentionally for the next ten years of, of our music in a weird way I, that I would have never predicted. Minus the like Rasta elements that popped up a little bit later, but it it, it pretty much had everything on it. Which how, how would yeah. you define? How would you guys define that? What would you what would you say are some of those characteristics? I mean, I think Oakley's vocals are a huge part of that era. And 
I think she was like really on one conceptually at that point in time. I would say yeah. too. In a lot she of was ways. an incredible vocalist, and it takes a lot of talent, I guess, and magic to be able to just pick up a mic with no idea of what where the song is going to go, and just improvise really cool like lyrics. And I think she taps she tapped into this sort of like actually Daryl described it to me the other day as being like the sound of what girls sing when they're home alone, like singing to themselves. And that kind of is where she was coming from. And she did such an incredible job of that. And she was really fun to watch and dance to when she was singing and stuff. She just had a great charisma and energy. Yeah, so, uh, well, yeah, I'm ki- about the move, I think, was kind of generally vaguely around where we were, where Aaron, why did you uh, move to New York? Well, we're also, do you want to talk just a little bit about that that stuff? Because I know you, stuff? yeah, because I know, I mean, I primarily know you're, you've made uh, a ton of videos for like uh, Justin Vernon and that kind of crew. And, like, and a lot, a lot of others too, though. So yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, there's totally. other stuff for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I got into it through, through Justin and Bond stuff, for the most part. I mean, that's that was like I I moved here in 2012, and I had, had worked at the Walker Art Center as a film projectionist for a long time, and then I taught like high school and animation college level and stuff before I moved here. And then when I moved here, I kind of just ended up getting in on museum jobs. And I was doing a lot of like AV and I worked at like the Guggenheim. I worked at the Met. I worked at the, I was like the head of AV at the new museum for like three years before. That was kind of, that was kind of like the last thing that I did in that world before starting to work on like the video stuff full-time or creative stuff full-time for band. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was kind of just like a natural, it was just like another freelance job for me. And I mean, like, obviously I like being creative and working with people a little bit more than like having to do a job. Not that like working at museums isn't that. And like, you get to see tons of cool shit and meet a lot of cool artists and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. That was kind of the intro. And so in whatever, 20... I got a studio probably in 2013 and then Eric moved in maybe like a year after that. And I was sharing the blazer guys were also in there. So I shared a studio with them and like, it was cool. Cause we would just all work all the time. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know. started working on bond stuff and did lyric videos for the album previous, the 22, a million album. And they were successful, I think, or something, and like the larger scale or something. But it was just like, for me, it was really just cool to be able to do videos for the whole album, to have that much space to like work with and like be able to start like making things like ping off one another and stuff like that. 
which is what I like about Beat Detectives too. It's like the same kind of like structural concept for it or something, if, if there is one or something like that. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've made, I like, I've made videos for a bunch of people. It's fun. It's cool. I don't, I don't know what else to talk about. I can, I made a black, I made a black dice video that Chris stars in actually. Check it out. It's for a song called White White Sugar. Oh, and uh, right. I think that's what it's called. And I made a couple of videos for Copeland, Eric Copeland, that are cool. I think, or I'm proud of them. Always awesome. And and he's made every Beat Detectives video, of which on our YouTube channel is one of There's the richest of and most insane. Uh, some of the most insane video art and music video like wizardry I've ever seen. So everyone, not to self-promote, but everyone should check that shit out. Heavy chillers only. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's what it's called. Is that what it Click is? The link. Click the link yeah. now, showing up in your... <laughs> yeah, there's just endless. You know, it's like, a, it's easier just to make stuff all the time and not make it at all, you know? You don't have to show it to everybody, but... Facts. That's facts. And I know you definitely uh, don't have to show it to everybody. Definitely, yeah. More people could learn that uh, a lot from yeah, that. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think at a certain point, maybe it, it can. I moved to New York, and then that be, began sort of like the more, like getting us up to speed on like what the project is now, which uh, was uh, Oakley sort of phased out, and we started just making. I mean, making albums here that were for me at least a lot more inspired by being in New York, being in an insane cultural, like, diaspora of incredible music and history that really, really profoundly has influenced and changed me as a person. But we started making albums here. Uh, Blazer Sound System was a huge influence for, I think, both of us playing shows with them and being friends with them. They were like, I can't even tell you how many Beastective songs were like the product of going and seeing Blazer and then going home and trying to replicate a sound that I heard and it ending up being something entirely different, but a song that I made because of that exact one-to-one -one experience. So those guys are absolute legends. Love those dudes. And they continue to inspire. They're, they're the best. Great little sound bit there, honestly. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for the book, the autobiography. Yeah, of yeah, Blazer yeah, songs. exactly. We'll get uh, I'll get Nathan and uh, uh, Tony to come on and be like, yeah, I don't know, we don't really like those guys. Yeah, yeah, Chris. Yeah, you'd be like, who? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of other like influences on like our music or something. For me, I'll not to interject there, but I'll I'll point one really quick one, which is Sun Ra. Like he hearing after he when he did the album The Inner Treaty, uh, which was like the the non psych one, the one that like really went fucked up. That I was like, this is this is the exact music I wanted to make, but I didn't know how or why. It really that really was pretty pretty critical for me. I I love that record. I love that dude, and he's. He's actually played with Nuke Watch and been a huge supporter of, of what we're doing, which is incredibly like means so much to me. But damn, I used to I used to listen to Sun Ra and ride bike around Minneapolis after a bad breakup, like <laughs> right after like spring hit and everything melted. But, <laughs> like 
what was it? The Heavy Cop? Is that the name? That's a great title. But is that the name of that album? Oh, Beat Cop. Is there a song uh, called Beat Cop? There's a song. There's an album called Heavy Something. Yeah. Heavy uh, Deeds. Like Heavy Deeds. That one. Like that. Those like first couple era, first three albums or something. Like Dubby Sykes. Yeah. Stuff. Sort of trop- tropical vibe. That era when everything kind of sounded like tropical music, but not quite. What about you, Aaron? You're going to say there's other influences that come to mind. Oh, uh, I think R.P. Boo was oh, definitely... Oh, like, man, uh, the best. Chris and I definitely bonded... Dude on 59th Street. Over the Dude on 59th Street, like, mega mix. You know, there was one time where I saw Tracks Man at, what was that place? El- Elvis's Guest House. And uh, there was, like, nine people there. That was one of the coolest shows... I've ever seen in my entire life and like it was I'd never seen anybody he was like he would just like watch people dancing and start playing songs that like match them and you could kind of pay attention to like what he was doing in a way oh man it was awesome yeah all that footwork stuff he was pretty like still sound insane anything that anything that anybody would ever ask me to turn off (laughs) I feel like that's usually music that I'd love or something like, I would play stuff before, like, movies with a walker, and, like, you know, they would ask me to turn Taterbug off. <laughs> or, like, there was one time my landlord was having a barbecue, and I, like, lived in this basement of this place in Minneapolis, and I had, like, the stereo in the window and was just playing music, and, like, some Taterbug came on, and my landlord was like, can you change the music? Like, and I was so, like, just abruptly, like, I didn't know what to do. I was like, yeah, sure, but... <laughs> It's, it's not even can you turn it's it the off? most beautiful it's like, music i've ever change? heard in my entire life like like someone doesn't ask you to turn it off they ask you just please change the artist <laughs> yeah can we listen to something else that happened on our tour once when we toured with joint custody somebody asked to turn rp boo off and i was like i cannot believe this that's like, sad of all things to turn you know it's just they yeah. weren't they weren't ready for it yet it was that was like 2012 that was a long time ago i remember when Dream Weapon was a band. We we toured. We did this absolutely amazing tour, and we played a show. Our first show was in Chicago with Bo Wanzer and I forget who else in some in a basement of a funeral home. And we played the show, and we like slept on the floor, and it was like so fun. We drove out the next day to go off on the tour, and then we heard that DJ Rashad had died that night, one block down the street from where we played. In, I think it was in Pilsen. And that was like pretty fucking tragic. Obviously tragic loss, but like that kind of hit home. I was like, God damn, this is like the best music I've ever heard. I can't believe that, you know, this young guy died. So it sucked. But, but yeah, that Rashad album though was also pretty cr- critical. Yeah, I feel like crazy people music was sort of like a theme we would talk about a lot <laughs> back in the day. Very. Like, this talk, is a, like, talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> this is like, this is after preset music or something, if we're self era in or whatever. Uh, but yeah, like crazy people music was just like stuff you listen to it and you're like, 
there's like it like just sounds insane like when you like the like the song itself is like a logical thing when it comes out but if you actually start to like listen to it you're like this music sounds broken or like so disconnected from reality it's what i think is cool about new metal to like segue it or something like there's something like so sonically dissonant that it like it just gets your attention it might not even be appealing and people get over that just to like you know because it's so fucked up sounding you know it's like detuned music intentionally detuned music which is like a you know not a new or interesting idea in any way but it like it still works in a lot of ways or something like it still is like a hook or whatever to be cool or like be more complex or something than like something that's just successful or like right or something totally i think there's like a level of authenticity there that is like real it's like you know you could say it's self-sabotaging too or something you know it's like you could you could be like well nobody likes it because it doesn't it sounds intentionally wrong or it just sounds wrong or something but but also maybe it's just a subversion of like what musical norms are and it's like if you know i think about this in terms of growing up in st cloud it's like i didn't really know who i was at that time but i knew who i wasn't yeah that that is really that's like a very good you're coming up with all these like uh, perfect, uh, yeah. perfect one-liners. That'll be like the the cover, the cover quote or whatever. Maybe that's like a through line, because if you know what music is or have an idea of what music is, it's a lot more interesting to play against that. Uh, or it can be, you know, I mean, there's, it's a, you can also be a, a, a student of Bach and get a lot out of that type of musical engagement. But in terms of improvised music and like the idea of unexpected things happening in music, that's by far more interesting uh, to me and that and I think that's reflected in Beat Detectives and Nuke Watch and everything else so like the fact that they're not songs that were it's not like rehearsed songs it's just like rehearsed playing together you know what I mean yeah it's like vi- it's like re- refined vibes that just transmute into energy like like who cares if it's some of our early music had more like housey style and some of our more recent music has more like uh like dance hall style and it, like the style doesn't matter at all there's hip-hop style there's like all these things but it like actually doesn't it's it doesn't exist to any of that genre specifically or it, it isn't actually participating in that scene or that culture it's actually just doing something with those tools or with those with those formats it is a testament to Aaron and I's like verbal and and primarily non-verbal communication especially when we're playing music and how much that vibe has been honed in on over the years and, and uh, how much it's changed and how and adapted to the changes and what interests us musically 
and who we are as people. So I'm, I, I want to shout out Aaron and my, my best possible version of a collaborator and person I respect musically the most. Shout out you too. <laughs> well, uh, I think, I think we're pretty good now. Cool. Thank you guys so much for, uh, thank you joining Jim. me. This is, this is really cool to talk about, uh, especially Minneapolis, my hometown. And, uh, yeah, every just get get to know a little bit more about my friends. Yeah, uh, I'll Definitely. talk to you guys soon. Um, and yeah, thanks to Aaron and Chris for joining me to speak about their lives and music and beyond. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to Four Hundred Floor wherever you get your podcasts. To hear the raw and uncut version of this episode plus much more bonus material, you can purchase it at four hundred floor dot com. That's the number four hundred and the word floor.com. 400 Floor is a podcast produced by Nina Protocol, where two musicians pair up to talk about their roots individually and together and reflect on the communities that shaped them. We'll be back in a few weeks with another deep dive. Thanks for listening.